We have a very, 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 very special guest. <laughs> it should go for like 10 seconds. 10, 10 varies. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm August. I'm Afi. I'm Tress, and welcome back to The Periphery. How are you doing, guys? You know, I'm always having the time of my life. We should probably insight that, like, there's, like, a TikTok, or, well, there's no text, of, like, someone being annoyingly into every day of the week. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's Monday, and I want to love Monday, and then it's Tuesday. And that's, like, me. But it's Friday, so it's less annoying than it usually is. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm the opposite. I hate every day. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Jess? How are you doing? Before we get into it. <laughs> um, I, I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, I've also been, I think another like relevant thing, I guess, to the periphery is that we've been watching the, um, the docuseries on Elizabeth, or well, the dramatic like an accent of the docuseries of Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, The Dropout. Uh, Wait, Afi, are you, have you gotten farther? I'm on episode episode two or three. three? Mm. Well, spoiler. Okay. She fails. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I have read the book uh, and I have heard that. Oh, okay. Wait, Jess, what do you, What? so we've talked about the show before, but uh, like, I personally think it's really good. Yeah, I think that it's really good too. Um, I think it's a very compelling story of a girl who had a, had a dream, um, not rooted in reality. So anyway, guys, we should probably get into the episode. So this week we talked to Nora Benavides, Senior Counsel and Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights at Free Press, which is a super cool organization that focuses on media literacy and disinformation defense. Um, which is a pretty timely topic if you're keeping up with the news. She actually led the organization's First Amendment lawsuit against Donald Trump, who was held accountable for uh, his censorship of journalists that he didn't get along with. So that's pretty neat. Um, She's a civil rights and constitutional lawyer and had a lot of really interesting things to say about the topic of misinformation, radicalization, and free speech online. I'm a civil rights lawyer by training, and I firmly believe that there are systemic problems which inhibit equal opportunity and equal access to so many things, offline and online. And um, the, the work that I have spent my career focusing on is how do we help people be agents of their own lives? I think... Uh... You know, one of the biggest takeaways I had, I kind of appreciated her take on the floodgates that are social media platforms, just of information overload that are tend to speak to some sense of people's identities and how she was talking about how it's kind of a seed of a bigger effort to distract and undermine civic engagement. I think that a lot of the strategies by bad actors to disenfranchise or inhibit civic engagement online really are a seed of a much bigger strategy to distract people. And when we are distracted by any number of threats, which I, of course, want us to know about, but when we are distracted, we are then less likely and less able to spend energy and time and 
collective bandwidth on imagining something better. So the more threats there are, the more we're on defense, the less we are really in a posture to be able to dream up something else. Mm. And that I really believe is by design. So it's crowded, it's chaotic, you know, it's any number of things that contribute to this density and which ultimately obscures how we focus as a progressive movement. Um, And I thought that was really interesting, especially thinking back to the 2016 election. What we know about Russia's efforts to interfere was entirely to get us to be angry at each other, no matter what. (laughs) They didn't care what we believed. They didn't care how accurate it was. They just wanted you to be angry at them and you to be angry at them and using these historical cleavages as much as they could. Uh, And I thought that was um, interesting. And also, I really hadn't heard that before from, like, an expert kind of working in these these policy realms. Right. And and viewing it that way, viewing this kind of larger picture of what's the effect in, in, you know, in the aggregate, uh, kind of goes to her, uh, what she told us about being essentially an activist or someone who really wants to make change and address large uh, social problems. In my own life, I have felt a tension forever between working at the individual level. When you litigate, for example, and represent an individual, I would represent Jessica and, you know, that would be my job and it would be micro. And then in other instances, I have felt like there needs systemic macro type of solution interventions in a number of ways, whether it's policy or a class action lawsuit. And so hearing your question, I immediately think of the tension I feel often just in my own life of which do you gravitate to? I think we need all of the above. I think we need immediate and individual interventions. We need systemic interventions that will rest with both companies taking systemic actions and regulatory systemic actions. And then I think we we need a lot of public education about a number of things. You know, what is speech? Uh, what are your rights online? What is censorship and what is not censorship? civic education that ties into the misconceptions we have that lead to fights online. Um, but the, the work, when I think about solutions, is one of all of the above. We need yes and. She, in, in some ways, the conversation reminded me of our talk with Mogli, where it was about the, the dynamics and the environment of being, uh, or, or of trying to make change in, uh, in a technologically- uh, saturated environment. And, um, you know, one thing that she mentioned was how do we solve these big problems? Well, she kind of sees a tension in, in, in her life and in her career between working on the individual level and, uh, and addressing policy, you know, macro, what she called macro solutions and intervention. And that tension has always been in her life. Uh, and she ultimately concluded that we need both. We need immediate individual intervention and systemic intervention. Um, and I, I guess I've always kind of struggled with that tension too, but I've always landed on the latter side, on the side of policy, because I can see, I think, the people behind the policy that it will reach eventually. Um, but I don't know. I, I guess that there is something important about immediate interventions. Um, and then the last thing was that she ultimately said that regardless of what level you're working on, public education is one of the biggest things. That's what, uh, a clear priority uh, for her. 
how would you suggest that somebody engage intelligently with the current ecosystem? Oh my gosh, I am daunted by that question. <laughs> I don't have kids and I, uh, <laughs> I'm daunted. Um, <laughs> you know, the media literacy expert in me immediately just wanted to say, fact check everything, you know, like slow down and for every single thing you see, question and think about where is it coming from? Why am I seeing this? Yeah. It's not really advice for how you practice or come to a platform. Um, and the question then of do you come to a platform at all? I don't think it's possible probably for young people, for teenagers to wholesale give up social media, though I am intrigued whenever I hear there are pockets of these movements that young people are divesting altogether of social media. Um, but I, I think it's just... Just being among, know, among them. <laughs> yeah, I don't use social media really. <laughs> That's fascinating to me. I know a few people that don't, and I don't know, are they the better? But maybe. There, there, are also, couple, there are some upsides and downsides. I don't get as many birthday texts now. Nobody knows my birthday. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm adjacent to Jess, but I came back on it largely in part to make the podcast more accessible. <laughs> like, I don't think yeah, I Yeah, you took one for it. the team. You did. <laughs> and I think that's, that's part of what probably I would, from an advice standpoint, tell a young person is, why are you using this, whatever the platform is, and be clear about your purpose. Is it to build a brand? Is it to connect with friends? Is it to push a certain viewpoint? The problem is that we have so many examples now of how people have been radicalized and that that can just spiral really quickly. And you know, given my age, I think about it almost from like a parent's perspective of how I would talk with someone. Um, but I don't have kids. And so it's a daunting question for that reason. Like, how do you talk with someone who's young about the potential harms of something that is so pervasive in our lives? And really, I would probably just come back to that media literacy background of mine and to, to have each of us try to ask more questions to center our experiences online on curiosity instead of emotion and whatever is the controversial, because that's how all of these platforms are structured. They, yeah. they do better when the content is more incendiary. So mm -hmm. it plays on emotions. Yeah. Everything's predicated on us liking, disliking, loving, hating, crying, caring, you know, it's like all emotion based. And so a young person who could, potentially see this as a curiosity endeavor, as a discourse endeavor. I'd be very intrigued by that potential. But specifically, we need to get people to think about speech and rights online, uh, on what censorship is, on what it means to be civil online, uh, reframing our own activity on platforms as if we were our own publishers. And we just got done talking a lot about uh, <laughs> publishers and platforms. Um, but this right, is we're in a constant motivation band here. You're yeah, we are. We're like two or three more episodes of this, right? <laughs> yeah, and but this is more psychological. It's about how are we thinking about what we say ourselves, and how do we take responsibility for that? I guess in and and how yeah, and how do we yeah. put like the current ecosystem in the context of what the Amer like what American free press has meant throughout the history of our country? Right. Yeah. How do we think about history? How do we frame that? And I guess you know some days I wake up and I'm like 
on the optimistic side of the bed. And I'm like, yes, you know, we should address education. We should try to reframe people's psychology, people's mental, uh, yeah, like mental frameworks, mental models for how, how, how they live online. But I have to say on maybe two out of three mornings, I wake up on a more pessimistic <laughs> side of the bed where I, I think that this is uh, really hard, really hard to do, to change people's minds in this way uh, first. And also you wouldn't really know exactly when you've succeeded or really how do you measure progress. So uh, I guess I'm left with, with that same tension that Nora mentioned. And I think it'll land more where you land about like taking a step back and working in these policy spheres, especially because, you know, I started saying my career is going to be me being a propagandist for good, mm. but mm. a propagandist nonetheless, <laughs> because <laughs> like maybe I should have put that out there. <laughs> hey, propaganda, that's a uh, propagandist neutral. Um, but it was kind of, yeah, I think that that even goes to, you know, two out of three days you're waking up with an assessment of how do people actually behave or respond to things. And I think you can even hear that awareness and Nora talking about history and how we view our own history with rose-colored glasses. And I teach a free expression course. And one of my favorite things that I've slowly more and more gotten into is really trying to research the way we as humans have this tendency to see history through rose-colored glasses. Um, and specifically in the First Amendment context, we, I'm not going to give you a history lesson, don't worry, but we'll we often it. love, <laughs> we like history. We love to think that, you know, we, previous histories were a certain way. And frankly, I think we often live with a lot of misconceptions. Uh, you know, a great example is the civil rights era. We love collectively to now think that that was a quintessential American moment. When in fact, during the civil rights era, black activists and leaders were beaten, arrested, nearly killed. Uh, you know, state and local laws were introduced to criminalize people standing on streets. But we love to now sort of hold it dear, like it was a period that we support. Um, similarly, there's this you know, tendency to think, oh, early America was wonderful. We loved speech. We were all one and we were diverse and supportive of diversity. When in fact, we really weren't. We were like little enclaves and people were very tight knit, never wanting diversity of opinion. And so as we often now describe that we are more divided than ever or just somehow suffering in new ways, I try to carefully gut check myself from saying that because we've often been very divided and the value of so many things in our free speech lexicon and discourse and just in debate is to really allow diversity and think about maybe we've always been like this and we're always trying to get somewhere and that the process is literally the, the essential element. I think you know, with with, with, com with upcoming interviews or guests, we've heard kind of a rosy perception of history. People tend to often have one about history and first speech and freedom, freedom of speech. But when you kind of look into the actual facts of what was happening, there's always been this entire mess of <laughs> people falling into conspiracies, people believing lies people being propagandized to go to, to do good and bad, uh, despite what, regardless of education levels. And I thought what she said that was really interesting was how, you know, with this awareness, maybe this process of <laughs> junk and mess and, you know, attempts to suppress and silence 
maybe that is the essential element that is free speech. Maybe that's it. This is it. And now we're just seeing it operate right in our face all the time with everyone at the, at the table. Mm. This is just, it's the, this is the power of historical analysis and historical questions, which is that they can completely change the problems that we see today. Once we start to see, for example, let's say we have a view of history where really disinformation, misinformation, the problem has always essentially been the same. Uh, then really that kind of makes us rethink, okay, if we're trying to solve this problem, it seems like a much heavier lift that this is just the nature of free speech. Uh, also, um, you know, maybe that's actually the good part of free speech. But basically, when we see either problems and crises as very old, or we start to dispense with uh, idyllic notion of the past, just like how Nora uh, tried to dispense with an idyllic notion of reporting and journalism in the past, uh, that also changes our, our problem today. You know, suddenly things open up. We're not trying to restore a status quo that is gone, but we're just trying to make something new uh, out of our values. But we should make sure to make that distinction. What actually happened in the past? <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's, it's really hard to, it's hard to tell, but that's also just, it's an important political tool. Uh, I mean, like, for example, she mentioned how she used to think that some kind of law or statute regulating the content of her speech, especially if it's, if it's an intentional lie, she used to kind of look at that and think it could be a good idea. Well, first, let me start with a little bit on the fake news uh, and criminalization side really briefly. You know, one of the big concerns I've always had is what global precedent will look like if we criminalize individual purveyors, the people who are doling out yeah. or creating, quote unquote, fake information, false information, uh, however, it would be described in a law that passes. We've seen instances around the world where these types of laws are introduced and then passed in authoritarian contexts. And so they are, as laws, then used to target journalists, dissidents, those that would have a political dissenting opinion. And that always rings warning bells for me, that if you're using something, which I'll be honest, intuitively, I at one time thought a fake news statute could be promising. I think it's important that we workshop and talk about those things. I really wondered myself, could that be a vehicle for change and a way to stem disinfo? But digging into it, I've just seen too many examples of uh, those laws being used to silence people. And it's always going to be minorities of some sort minority opinion, minority ethnically, racially, whatever the minority group is in a certain context, they will be silenced and clamped down on or censored because of something like that. Um, so that's often then led me to wonder what the other intervention should be like. But she looked around the world across time and space uh, and saw that more often than not, those laws were used for oppressive and abusive ends. And she now puts that off the table. You know, that's just an, another example of history informing the nature of the problem and of the solution. Another thing that I thought was really interesting about sort of the differences between the current media ecosystem and what we had before is sort of this idea of it being so crowded online. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe none of us were alive or maybe you guys weren't. I don't know to remember uh, when there was a time that a majority of Americans tuned in to television shows at the same time to consume the same narrative. Good or bad, it was all one. 
uh, and the peripheries, haha, if you will, were <laughs> were just there were fewer. And so now there are pockets and pockets and pockets of ecosystems where we all may exist, frankly, just totally unaware of what else is happening. And that means that building urgency is harder. <laughs> Forgive the analogy, but I remember reading this interesting article about like neuroscience and it's about it's how it's like actually impossible to multitask because like at any given second you're like switching little focus nodes to like okay now you're doing this task now you're doing this other task and even though you don't think you're doing that like it's taking time but I think like with how streamlined Twitter is and like how streamlined just like you're scrolling through your timeline is you don't contextualize like these bits of information or like not like just like junk as different like as qualitatively different or as like coming from different camps like you see a like a reporter reporting something that's like a like supposedly true and supported by journalistic integrity and then you see someone's like half-baked opinion that they like might change their mind on tomorrow but it's all coming from the same platform and so it's just this barrage of like, you don't know what to do with it because it's just like overhearing like different conversations all at the same level and volume. I think you're totally right. Especially, well, I'm just thinking about how Facebook's changed. And I remember there was a time where you used to have to like press on Facebook to continue your feed going. Yeah. And then it was like kind of a, a whole conversation and they were like, okay, continuous scrolling is now the status quo. Um, and I even think that well, this is kind of a separate separate issue. It's kind of like changing changing tones. I also thought like the conversation about like radicalization and identity online with Renoir was quite interesting. Just like being able to pick your news sources uh, and how that was much more active yeah. than it is now. We really aren't in charge of our social media experiences anymore. I'm not sure we ever were, uh, but there's now at least more and more evidence to show that social media companies are not agnostic in their practices. And what that really means is, you know, an example is Facebook meta now, uh, you know, will place individual users into cohorts based on your profile picture and your little attitudes and the things you like and dislike and search for. And if you are of a race or gender that they have deemed a minority, you won't be given certain ads. That in and of itself is one kind of preferential treatment that some people get. The force feeding of really horrible extremist content is another, that no matter what, the algorithms skew towards giving us more of the bad stuff. Extremist content gets engaged six times non-extremist or other content. And so it's just a kind of like fire hose of just horrible toxicity. And I think we're now at a moment, luckily, that people are starting to really pay attention and understand that and the role that social media plays. And you know, this got me think about a, like a broader philosophical art stance on humanity and just like choice architecture and just free will, where I'm not certain that I see in any point in history much choice in the information we receive. I... Uh, Ever. Um, I'm thinking about before the internet. Yeah, we had these five, seven, whatever. Who was it that Carl thinks about Walter? Oh, Walter Cronkite. <laughs> Walter Cronkite. Well, yeah, we were just talking about how in the past we didn't have as much choice. No, yeah. And so it's kind of like this weird tension, kind of with those coming out of nowhere, where, you know, on the one hand, 
we're losing, you know, this choice. Maybe, or maybe, maybe she was basically saying that we always have had this lack of choice, but we feel like we have more now that we actually don't because it's just being fed to us. But I don't feel that I'm any more or less active in the reception of content that I receive than I was before. Well, I mean, I was only around so much longer before. <laughs> but then, like, before I received most of my content or information from these platforms. And even moreover, like, I'm pretty adept at this point at, I think, you know, can be too certain, at using these algorithms to give me the content that I want. My For You page totally maps onto the things I like to be interested in, TikTok, on Instagram, uh, except for the cheese, because for some reason, Instagram thinks I love cheese, like every... every... Instagram also thinks I love frogs. <laughs> you do love frogs. Which is not true, but I do now because of them. <laughs> <laughs> So, and I just like learned, and I think a lot of you have learned not to, how to like interact with these algorithms to kind of get them what they want. That to me uh, suggests some level of choice. I remember on TikTok, people, there's like these trends of videos of like people saying, oh, and he says that TikTok's nothing but like girls dancing or something like that. It's like you're telling on yourself. <laughs> because it's like that's not my you just outed yourself <laughs> yeah. but like lip gloss said like that's what it is when you join it is it totally is but there's a default like there's a default use and mind. it's still that you're telling yourself yeah. and I think that's kind of true well this goes back to our conversation with lip gloss where we were talking about how I don't think we have a choice but to have content moderation and publication in order for even anything to be popular uh, across a wide uh, swath of people Otherwise, I honestly feel like a lot of internet content will feel like a random generator, you know? And it's, um, uh, I lost my train of thought, but okay, yeah. I, I will add that, uh, you know, to, to Nora's statement about how we're being like force-fed extremist content these days. I think that's probably true, but at the same time, we I think that we definitely do have more choice today. Uh, I think that we need to make a distinction where obviously in the, in, like at the dawn of the internet, back at the time when, CDA uh, 230 was passed. There was this kind of uh, ideo democratic ideology, of course, that the more choice people have in terms of their information, we're going to have essentially like a free market where we're going to get the best optimal outcomes for everyone yeah. once everyone can have that choice. But that's just not what's happening. Uh, obviously, there's some level of moderation and control and force feeding. But there is a lot of choice here. And I think those, the societal outcomes are just not satisfying. In fact, arguably, they're more complex. But we do have more choice today, I would say. Yeah, and it makes me wonder about um, just, like, the psychological effect that that, like, sense of choice or maybe, like, false sense of choice has on just, like, consumers of news. Because, like, like choice anxiety is definitely a thing. So to feel like you could at any time decide, like, through what lens you're going to digest, like, reality is an overwhelming thing. Because it should be something that's, like, just true. But But you realize that, like, maybe it was never actually just true. Like maybe it was, maybe even when I felt like everyone was getting the same information and we felt like that was like ordained or somehow verified as like the actual like story of events that was happening. Like it was, it wasn't, it was like, it was always like tilted one way. We just didn't realize it because we couldn't compare them like side by side by side. And they weren't like interacting with each other on the same platform. Right. Right. I mean, this is, uh, this goes also identity is related to this, right? Where, the information we consume informs how we present ourselves, the kind of people we want to be. And now we're making that, that choice at the same time that we're deciding how we're going to 
figure out what reality is. Yeah. And that yeah. means that identity. And we're signaling that to other people. Right. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's a complex nexus between, uh, real, between reality and selfhood. Yeah. And, you know, this is Anthony Giddens, a sociologist uh, still alive. Uh, you know, he once wrote that, you know, the primary problem of modernity is that we have no choice but to choose. And I think that that is largely correct. That is a source of huge anxiety for people. He was referring to people's identity in particular. Uh, but I think that it comes with, like, what is real? You know, what are bedrock principles for how reality works? Um, it's a part of identity today as well. And we have no choice but to choose. Yeah, it's even funny. Like, the more... It's funny that you say that these are kind of... This nexus is happening at the same time. Because, like, you know... One, or not even one, just when Nora was saying, like, slow down and question everything, just, like, more to the ethos of, like, education publicly. I think that that... It seems like a lot of experts are kind of honing in on this. It's all too fast. It's all too quick. There's no time to think. Where, I mean, slow down, slow down and... Uh, slow down and put things together. Slow down and question, yeah. Slow down and put things together. Slow down and synthesize. I think that's, like, you know, another tool for this, to like, this new era that we should be thinking about implementing. You know, we saw in that Lennox article I sent to you guys about... Uh, you know, putting in stop gaps. I think we talked about it in the last episode as well that you found annoying. <laughs> I just said that it's, we were talking about the value out of social media. Totally. Yeah. yeah. But like, it would definitely make, like, make, just changing the design, content neutral designs of these platforms where it's not so quick and immediate. There's a level of thinking, a level of stopping, and like, considering kind of what am I actually putting out there uh, that, it can be kind of both systemic and individualistic. You know, if it is tr if our behavior is different on these platforms, we have to copy and paste something versus just retweet. That's worth thinking about and at least trying out. Maybe pilot how, how are anger levels on a Twitter where there's slower tra transmission than with this quick fire, no stakes. You know, totally going to affirm my identity this way. I mean, you also my Twitter account pre and post periphery. Uh, <laughs> my likes are and no one else ever will. Yeah, <laughs> my likes are no longer as risky. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like when I first came to Stanford, I just created a new Twitter account called SLS August, and that was <laughs> and the old one. I just left behind. Which we still have not been able to follow. I, I let yeah, the, I let, it, let the record show. <laughs> that August has said soon he will allow us to follow his other account. By the way, has over 400 followers, so uh, it's yeah. not like anything uh, secret no on it anyway. <laughs> and hey, look, he's I, protecting I his personal. Uh, <laughs> here we are, guys. Guys, can I can I read this um, this quote from this book on oh, Frankfurt yeah. School about choice? Yes. Because yes. as soon as you said that, August, it made me think of this quote um, about how choice is illusory. <laughs> Arguably, we still live in a world like the one the Frankfurt School ooh, ex 
excoriated, excoriated, excoriated. We're all learning. If one in which we have more freedom to choose than ever before. Adorno and Horkheimer thought that the freedom to choose that was the great boast of the advanced capitalist societies in the West was chimerical. Um, We had the freedom to choose what was always the same, they argued in dialectic of enlightenment. Humans had been transformed into desirable, readily exchangeable commodities, and all that was left to choose was the option of knowing that one was being manipulated. Mm. Mm. That's interesting. Nothing has changed. Yeah. I mean, that. I think Anthony Giddens would say that, really, life isn't all about making choices. I mean, like, that's an important part of life, sure, but that's not everything. And really, most humans have relied on things not that they don't have to choose. I mean, I love Trader Joe's because of its lack of options. Right. I go to Safeway and right? I don't know how to operate. <laughs> like, yes. what, the, what the fuck is all this? Yeah, I mean, optionality it's always the It's always the yogurt that gets me. <laughs> like, there's so many types of yogurt. I never know what I want. Yeah, I mean, that's it's costly to make these decisions. Thinking takes up energy. Um, but back to, like... The Francis Hogan suggestion about, you know, just slowing down the pace, putting stop gaps and so that we can cognize. I mean, it reminds me of back in high school, I was in this history class. And whenever we take an exam afterward, we look at what we got wrong on these multiple choice exams. And we do this exercise called metacognition, which is a fancy word for let's just go over why you, did, you got this wrong. But, um, you know, it was like a useful time every, where I could always expect Bring me back it. to the LSAT. <laughs> Where it's like, don't just do it and keep going, but obviously you want it like some systematically embedded uh, time uh, for thinking. Um, it reflects some assumptions about human psychology. And this is making me think that we don't really know how the brain works, uh, but uh, that we need to try to maybe, I don't oppose those kinds of stopgaps, even if they are annoying, yeah. you know, because, but I, I would just endorse making sure that those kinds of uh, breaks um, are like really in tune with what we know about human psychology. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know. Which is not much. Yeah. <laughs> As actually, look at me talking out of my absolute whatever. I have no idea how much I know about human psychology. <laughs> but I mean, I can assume there's a lot we don't know. Yeah. You know, yeah. and um, especially when it comes to like how people think and, uh, you know, our neurodiverse society. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. One more thing. Um, I really appreciated when I asked about, you know, what her, what's the line, uh, who should be responsible for <laughs> protecting us online? Yeah. What, what is the line? What should we be doing is the thing that all experts are wrestling with, um, both because I think globally we want to have a commitment to free expression. We want the most expression, the most opportunity for engagement. Um, but we now know that disinformation, hateful speech and content, other forms of extremist language have very dire consequences. And that the individual purveyors are not then themselves fully responsible because to our earlier point, we know that then companies themselves give us that more than anything else. So I think the first thing that we need is to truly understand the problem. You mentioned these black women on TikTok and their accounts removed. 
at best, I think we only have anecdotal evidence and data about what's really happening, who gets removed, what content is seen by whom, and for how long before it gets removed. Are there asymmetries in moderation and enforcement? We know that there are asymmetries when it comes to non-English disinformation, for example, which gets less money, less moderators, basically is up longer on many platforms because it is somehow seen as not as necessary to moderate. And so we need transparency and information into what we often call the black box. Like we, we don't know what's happening on these platforms. When a crisis, you know, when a crisis occurs, like Russia, Ukraine uh, type crisis, and there was sort of this rise of people saying, oh, this is an information war happening. Um, there is a clampdown of bad content. And I absolutely think that the enforcement of horrible violating content must occur, but it happens in such odd waves. There's a huge upswing in a crisis and then it falls back down. And so across every category of terms, we still don't really have a sense of how companies are operating and we don't understand their business models or their algorithms. And so that transparency piece feels like it is the essential foundation for everything else that would flow out of it. You know, whether it is fixing the algorithms to address discrimination whether it is also then making sure that there is civic integrity all the time. You know, many of these platforms only employ certain types of moderation when they know an election is coming. But we know that misleading and harmful narratives don't just happen the month before an election in a given country. Borders are porous online and the topics are porous. So COVID disinfo can make you vulnerable in other ways to narratives about how the election has been stolen. And that fundamentally companies really have not been able to deal with yet. And so they kind of treat it piecemeal. Oh, an election's happening here. Let's pull together more enforcement. Uh, That doesn't work. So we need a kind of starting with transparency and then flowing out of that, a set of real reforms that fix discrimination online and, and make sure that the content that must be removed is removed and that content that must be reviewed and moderated is, whether that's with labels or frictions or other types of mechanisms. Because uh, it kind of mirrored the Obama speech that was at Stanford a few, uh, this week, where he had no answers and in many ways neither did Nora in a way that felt kind of encouraging to me um and hopefully for the periphery as well that you know people who spend all their free time thinking about this whose careers are centered on thinking about this it is so hard to get right and I think that's like something I think we should always kind of have at the fore of any idea and solution that we have because it's going to look imperfect and unsatisfying (laughs) because it is so hard to get right. We have, I haven't heard a satisfying solution yet because there are so many considerations where, it, you know, forthcoming, we have Professor Jamil Jaffer coming on and his take was all about readdressing what is the actual goal and point here? What does the freedom of speech actually mean? And starting there, 
understanding the broad value that we're trying to protect and do our damn best to get as close as possible. Where I think this was even more like to that point where it's who should have responsibility? Well, what are we actually trying? Whose free speech matters most? Mm. The platforms, the peoples, the government's interest in it. Whose matters most and for what reasons? And then start thinking about solutions. I think and that's like, I think makes it way less daunting when you kind of have the values set first, just like what we do at the Center for Air and Digital Policy, uh, where you map out the values first. These are the values that we want to protect. And then let's start understanding the technology and its relationships to those values. Right. This is a point about like the politics of, of change, where um, in the past few episodes now, we've talked about knowledge problems, like the fact that we just don't know certain things. We mm-hmm. don't have a grasp of the mechanisms. Or there are just a lot of options of different mechanisms that could be in play. And, and yet at the same time, I guess I feel like, especially on the progressive left, people who want systemic change, especially in technology, there's a lot of perfectionism. There's a lot of, <laughs> yeah. not a lot, there's not a lot of room to make mistakes. Why? Because obviously when you're making policy, the mistakes are very, very costly. Mm-hmm. But um, I think it's probably pretty inevitable that to make change, you have to make mistakes. <laughs> there will be mistakes. And you have to take some big risks. And that's the scary part. I think, for a lot of people. And I think that maybe perfectionism, you know, pointing out the flaws of a certain policy, the people that it might end up hurting or actually did end up hurting, might be a bit of a hedge. Mm-hmm. Because what are you going to do? Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I just want to note that. Like, that's, I think, I like one explanation that. for why, you know, oftentimes we just can't come up with answers. One, it's yeah. sometimes it's often just way too risky to do so. I like that. that uh, and, you know, maybe even, like, reframe it. There'll always be work to do. So you never want for employment, or maybe that's just like lawyer speaking out of me. Yeah, and definitions like definitions for some of these concepts will be fluid depending on the culture. I I, well, actually, there are probably a lot of um, like originalists or other constitutional scholars that think like, oh, the First Amendment shouldn't be a fluid thing. But um, like we talked to Neil Richards in that class that one time, and he as a non-U.S. citizen, was kind of skeptical of, like, the historical interpretation of freedom of speech and, like, what it means and what it's meant to protect. And, like, with the globalization through these technologies and through the spread of, like, non-borderless like platforms and artificial, like, cooperation across borders, you just wonder if, like, freedom, the definition of freedom of speech will change to reflect those. And, like, maybe to make it so that, like it can be more easily exported to other nations that don't currently have a freedom of speech standard. Like, you never know. Have we done it, folks? Have we done yet another episode? Exceptionally talented, high quality. Uh, there's like that Lady Gaga meme where she just like goes on and on about the like, <laughs> terms. Yeah, I mean like, guys, nominate us for an award. I feel like we deserve it. <laughs> No, I really, I really enjoyed. She was really cool to talk to. I really yeah, enjoyed this conversation. I agree. As always, um, we are on Patreon, and just a reminder: all of our interviews, the full thing, uncut with our roundtable discussions, will be on our Patreon over the summer. We don't have time right now, but it will be there. So join our Patreon if you want to help support us and help us do more cool things that we want to do. Uh, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're on LinkedIn, and we're also on Gmail at the Periphery Podcast at Gmail. Sorry, Mark. 
uh, email us any comments, questions, and feedback. We absolutely love it. And we will talk to you next week. And follow Nora Benavides at, at Attorney Nora on Twitter.